I'm Danny Rivero, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. To start the hour, major news out of the city of Miami this week as Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla was arrested on a wide array of felony charges by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Those charges include money laundering, official misconduct, and criminal conspiracy. De La Portilla is a former Republican state representative and state senator, and he was elected to the City of Miami Commission in 2019. Just two months from now, in November, he will be on the ballot for re-election. This morning, I talked with Joshua Ceballos, the government accountability reporter here at WLRN, for the arrest and developments. So, Josh, Commissioner Diaz de la Portilla is facing a broad range of felony criminal charges. Can you help break down for us exactly what is alleged that happened here? Right. So there's a there's a number of things that uh, are alleged against uh, Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla. I mean, like you mentioned, he's got a, a slew of felony charges, money laundering, unlawful compensation, bribery, criminal conspiracy. So um, one of the things is because he, he was uh, charged along with an associate of his, an attorney, William Riley Jr., um, and it's alleged that they accepted uh, monies for uh, Alex Diaz de la Portilla's brother's campaign. So his brother, Rainier de la, uh, Diaz de la Portilla, was running for Miami-Dade County judge. So it's alleged that they received, I think, about uh, $15,000 um, for that campaign that uh, Diaz de la Portilla, Alex, did not report. Um, so you're supposed to re- report any any kinds of campaign donations, and, and they did not. Um, it's alleged also that uh, Alex Diaz de la Portilla was using funds from two political committees, and these committees had a, a combined total of uh, over $3 million in donations. He was using that money for uh, personal reasons. And it, it's also alleged that they accepted and moved some money around uh, in order to um, facilitate a park deal, basically some kind of uh, pay-for-play type scheme. A bribery, essentially. Right. That's what's being alleged. And this is not the first time that Alex Diaz de la Portilla has found himself tangled in alleged wrongdoing. Can you give us a quick breakdown of some of the recent controversies he's been involved with? Yeah, so there's a lot. (laughs) Um, So he was sued in August by his political opponent, uh, Miguel Gabela, who was running against him in November uh, because the city uh, in their redistricting process um, drew Gabela out of District 1, where Alex is also campaigning. Um, basically, which would disqualify him from the race. So Gabella alleged that this was Alex doing that or, or pushing the city to do so, um, so that he would not have any you know, viable opponent in the race. Um, he was uh, recently sued again um, in civil court by a lobbyist um, who claimed that Alex and his associates were shaking down the lobbyist who worked for a prospective marina operator um, in order to give Alex's financial uh, supporter a piece of the Rickenbacker Marina. His, his financial supporter wanted to be involved in the business at the Rickenbacker Marina. And um, this lobbyist says that they tried to shake him down by pressuring him. And that's a that's a civil suit. That's that that is a civil suit. Yes. The commissioner said a few words in his own defense after being released from TGK jail in Miami-Dade County last night. Let's hear what he had to say to WSVN. This is a work of fiction, I'll repeat it again. This is a work of fiction by a Democrat state attorney targeting a Republican city commissioner, period. The same thing that's happening to President Trump at the national level with four different false, four different false prosecutions is happening to me in Miami at the local level. Josh, um, what, what, do you, what do you make of that defense? It's, it's basically saying this is 
pure fiction. I, I, I find that a little bit hard to believe because, first of all, uh, this this investigation was started by the Miami-Dade Commission on Ethics, which is nonpartisan. They were looking into possible ethics violations by Alex. And then when they found criminal behavior, that's when they reached out to the state attorney's office. Also, the Broward State Attorney's Office is uh, is the one investigating this because they did that on the governor's order, or Governor DeSantis's order. Um, normally, this would be investigated and prosecuted by the Miami-Dade State Attorney, um, but uh, Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, the state attorney, said that she there might be some kind of conflict uh, in her office, and so she recused herself, and so the governor ordered this investigation to be headed in Broward. And. Can you tell us a little bit about the commissioner and what kind of reputation he's fostered in, in City Hall over the last few years? Right. So um, Alex has, has kind of have as a reputation for being um, very abrasive uh, on the dais, um, sometimes uh, very harsh towards constituents, harsh towards Miami residents. Um, I've, I've watched a number of Miami commission meetings where Alex will just walk up, uh, get up and walk out during the public comment period when the commissioners are, commissioners are supposed to listen to the public. He'll just walk out and go to his office. Um, or when uh, um, important things are happening in a meeting, Alex will ask for an adjournment or, uh, or a deferral and say, I've got ribs in the back. I've got sushi in the back. Let's go eat. Let's go have lunch. When there's important things that people are there to wait on. And uh, I think the, the biggest example for me in recent uh, times was there was a very important vote um, about the special election for District 2, uh, which happened early this year. And he just delayed and delayed and delayed on a Saturday. People were there on a Saturday to speak, and he just kept pushing the vote and pushing the vote and saying, I can be here all day. I've got ribs in the back. I've got food in the back. And it just seems like a very harsh and, and abrasive attitude to have as an elected commissioner who's elected for the people. And on, on that note, Commissioner diaz Portilla actually qualified to be on the ballot for his reelection in November, two months from now. Um, and he qualified just a few days before his arrest. What inc- impact could this arrest, these charges have on that election? I mean, besides just like the, the reputational impact, I think, um, you know, it's possible that Governor DeSantis could remove him from office uh, because he's been charged. But uh, until he's convicted, uh, he can still run. He can still run and, and could very well uh, win his seat once again um, unless he's convicted of those charges. Joshua Ceballos is the government accountability reporter here at WLRN. Josh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Moving on, a state law was passed earlier this year that allows local governments to set up cameras to enforce speed limits in school zones. That law was passed nearly unanimously, with a small number of Republicans and Democrats voting against it. The Florida Department of Transportation is still figuring out how the new cameras should be implemented. But that hasn't stopped local governments from moving forward and trying to lock in contracts for these new cameras. The cameras are not red light cameras, but there are many similarities between them. And some opponents say they bring up the same issues as red light cameras of local governments using them as a moneymaker. Now, Miami-Dade County banned red light cameras in unincorporated areas back in 2016. And a new proposal sponsored by Commissioner Anthony Rodriguez would allow these new speed cameras in school zones into the unincorporated areas. Commissioner Rodriguez joins us now. Commissioner, thanks so much for coming on. And we are... The, Commissioner, are you with us now? Yes. Hello, Danny? Yes. 
You're all right. We're we're, we're on the air. Thank, Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. I appreciate uh, being able to discuss this topic on air with you and your and your audience. Absolutely. And we want to hear from you if you're listening to this. Should Miami-Dade County implement these new speed enforcement cameras in school zones? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Or tweet us at WLRN. So, Commissioner, the new law does unquestioningly allow for these new speed enforcement cameras to be installed in school zones. What's your pitch as to why these new cameras are needed? Well, this is, this is simple, right? And, and as you were mentioning, Danny, um, the legislature in the state of Florida passed this uh, as a statewide uh, allowance earlier this year, and, and it was signed by the governor. So now it's up to the local municipalities, you know, cities and counties, to, to go ahead and implement it on a local level if they, if they so wish to do so. And, and basically, this is exactly what you're saying, right? This is a speed detection system specifically for school zones um, and specifically on school days. Uh, during school hours, and and this is very 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 different than the uh, regular red light traffic cameras that people are are, are accustomed to or have seen in the past. Uh, in fact, I I take a second just to to deviate and say uh, I served in the legislature for four years, and during my time in the legislature, I actually uh, sponsored the item to repeal red light traffic cameras. So I'm I'm not in favor of red light traffic cameras in general, uh, but this to me is something that is for the safety of our children. I've got personally three school-aged uh, kids, uh, and this is something that will ultimately save lives. And and in doing so, I I'm a big advocate for that. And and I want to and I want to take a a second, um, Danny, to to kind of explain right uh, to those listening that this is something that exists today. Uh, today, if somebody is speeding in a in a school zone, uh, at least in Miami-Dade County, you, know, you have to be going under 15 miles per hour. And and if you're not, the police officer on duty. Uh, can pull you over and and write you a, a citation. So this actually uh, does a few things. Uh, this is it actually is less of a citation amount uh, than if a police officer was to pull you over. Uh, so it's actually less less money that the citation is for. But it's more consistent because unfortunately the, the police officer cannot have eyes on every single person. Yet somebody that the, that the police officer may not have eyes on. Could could cause real harm or or injure and, a child and the crossing, ca- and the camera could be there. Um, I I do want to cite some numbers from the Florida Department of Transportation. Um, according to the state's traffic safety dashboard, there have been zero serious injuries or deaths from automobiles that have been reported by the Miami Dade School Board Police Department since 2017. So, when we're talking about the severity of the safety issues, at least according to the state data, it does not show that there is a major issue in this area. What's, what's your response to that? Well, my response to that is, is the following, Danny. Number one is, I, I don't know what statistics they're, they're going off of, what their criteria is, but I here in Miami-Dade County, right in the city of Doral, uh, I know of a family that, that lost their child uh, as a result of, of a speeder uh, of a violator going uh, over speed limit in a traffic uh, school zone. Uh, so that's that's untrue. Now, as far as Maybe they're, they're going off of a different type of criteria, uh, but uh, I'll tell you that we have a family right here in the city of Miami-Dade County, in the, in the county, Miami-Dade County and in the city of Doral, that, that unfortunately experienced a fatal accident, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but but I go a step further, right, is why even put that out there in the universe? Let's prevent it. And, and at the end of the day, if you are speeding in a school zone and putting our children at risk and or their parents or grandparents that are picking them up from school, then... You're a violator, 
and and you're you're wrong. You're in the wrong. You're 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 not. You're doing something that's illegal, and it's and it's not correct, and it puts our our children at, at stake. Uh, and I think that this is something that once if if it gets to that, if you're a violator and you get a citation once, I think you won't be a repeat offender. I think that's something that will tell you, hey, I need to watch. I need to watch myself. I need to be more cognizant when I'm driving through these school zones, and and I won't be a repeat offender. In fact. Uh, statistics that have gotten from other states and other counties that have already implemented this and have been ongoing for, for a couple of years now show that um, there's there's like 80% of those that get citations that never get a second citation uh, because they learned their lesson. And that's kind of the goal here. That's the idea. Right. Um, a, a lot of school zones, and this is an ongoing issue in, across the county, they when when it's summertime, when there's a teacher planning day, the 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 flashing lights and the speed warnings are still going on when class is not in session. Um, I mean, ha- have you discussed that at this point with the school board or try to figure out that because people become kind of immune to those fl- flashing cameras when they say, well, school's not in, you know, whatever, drive at normal speed. Correct. Correct. So that's something that we have had discussions with. And that's something that will be uh, that the administration here in Miami-Dade County will, will negotiate with uh, said company uh, that installs these uh, speed detection devices. Uh, and, and obviously, if it's, if it's one of those instances where the, the, those flashing lights were not shut down, uh, but there's no school that day, then obviously that's a, that's a, and a citation was to be given, which the idea is that the citation won't be given on those days. But definitely the person will not have to pay that citation. And we have a school calendar which shows what days are schools and what days are not. And obviously, this is not going to be abused. Uh, and shall it ever become something that is abused? The same way that we're implementing it, we can always uh, amend it, alter it, or remove it altogether. Uh, Danny, the neat thing about the way that that um, I'm positioning this this uh, system to be implemented is is two very important uh, key factors to the company that we're negotiating with right now to implement this, which is the the leader in the industry that is already implementing this in other counties in the state and in the state of Georgia as well, our neighboring state, is A, if, if in the next year, let's say, you know, just to put a time frame, this is an example, we say, hey, didn't work out, uh, it's not what we thought, um, you know, I'm, I'm negotiating this in a way where there is no, no uh, cost to breaking out of this agreement. Uh, we just tell them, hey, goodbye, see you later. And there is no uh, no cost for that to the county. Right. Uh, can... And then, and the second thing, or maybe I should have said this first, is the way that this contract works with with these companies that will come in and do this for us is uh, it doesn't cost the taxpayers a single dollar. In fact, in fact, it does the the actual opposite. Um, it, it, revenue it... from these citations brings revenue into the county uh, and offsets our taxpayers. Um, amount that, that that ultimately can save taxpayer dollars in the future when we're discussing uh, balancing a, a county budget. Got it. So, th- th- thank you, Commissioner. We we have a call coming in from Rick in Miami who has some thoughts on this. Rick, thanks for calling the South Florida Roundup. You're, you're on. I know why this guy's focusing on that. I remember clearly when these, these school zones things started, and I think they work perfectly fine. I've, I've never seen anybody speeding through there when there's kids around. Never. I think they work great. The thing is, the the lights don't work some of the times, and the they flash when they're school. That's what they should be fixing. But uh, I I think it's a ridiculous idea, a waste of time. I I even don't didn't like the red light cams, but I think they're even better than this. Uh, that's my thank, opinion. Thanks for hearing th- me. Th- out. Thank thank you for your for your call, Rick. And um, you know, Commissioner, I I do want to ask you about the the money side of this that you were just referring to the the potential revenue generating side and i have 
you know, just a few examples here when it comes to red light cameras and how those have played out, because that's what we have right now. Um, so, for example, Opalaka has a population of about 16,000 people in the current fiscal year. They expect to collect $2.3 million in red light camera ticket revenue. That's about 10% of their budget. West Miami, town of about 7,000 people. They're collecting about 800,000. That's about 10% of their budget. Um, I mean, clearly red light cameras are a moneymaker for smaller municipalities. It's a big part of why a lot of members of the public are so strongly against them. Um, I mean, it is going to make money if these new cameras pass. Um, how will we make sure that they're not used in a way that people view as, a, as abusive and ex, you know, extracting cash from the public? And that's a great question, and this is and this is part of why why uh, I, I am vested into this, right? And and the way that this really came about, uh, Danny, is during my time in the legislature, um, I had a, uh, a a family member that lost their child come come see me, and this is how I started to get involved with with this entire movement. Uh, but but moving to to your question here today is that that is true. This is a source of revenue for the county, and and I've I've always vouched and I've stuck to that, and and my track record will will show if, if you follow is. Uh, that I am not for increasing fees. Um, I, I have not voted for any uh, tax increases or fee increases uh, in any budgets uh, during my time uh, as a as an elected official. And so that's why things like this are are so healthy, in my opinion. Right? This only applies to violators. And if you don't if you don't want to get cited, if you don't want to pay a citation, then don't break the law. But I'd rather offset the, the budget with revenue uh, collected from a citation of a violator, somebody that's breaking the law, than to have to increase taxes. Or, or charge our residents that are good uh, law-abiding citizens. So this is something that will, in fact, generate uh, revenue. That number is unknown uh, yet because it, it has, it's not being done. Obviously, red light traffic cameras is a much larger scale because it's every intersection. And this is specific only to school zones and only during school days and hours. Uh, so it's a much smaller scale than red light traffic cameras. Uh, and it's a different reason for it, right? Uh, red light traffic cameras is, is, is was intended to just cite every violator, uh, regardless of where, what time, uh, the reason. Just if you're if you're violating, you get a citation. This the the ultimate and underlying purpose is to make sure that not even one child gets injured uh, while crossing a school zone, and that's enough for me to sleep well at night, knowing that I'm doing something that could potentially save a life. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Anthony Rodriguez. He's Miami-Dade County's District 10 Commissioner. Commissioner Rodriguez, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Danny, for having me, and thanks for all your audience for listening in. Thank you. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, housing affordability, tax rates, and election costs. We're discussing county budgets across South Florida. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. And if you haven't noticed, it's September, and that means it's budget season. Decisions are being made right now about how billions and billions of your tax dollars are being spent in cities and counties across Florida. From the affordable housing crisis to building resilience to rising seas on the coastlines to how our trash is collected, this is where the rubber hits the road with solving these issues. Budgets, it's often said, are moral documents that embody our priorities as a society. So 
Let's talk about where we stand for the new fiscal year that starts on October 1st. Joining me now to discuss this is Miami Herald County Hall reporter Doug Hanks, WLRN Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III, and Palm Beach Post County Hall reporter Mike Diamond. Thanks for joining me, all of you. And what are your main budget concerns this coming fiscal year? You can call us on the South Florida Roundup at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Or tweet us at WLRN. Doug Hanks with the Miami Herald. Let's start with you. Um, Miami-Dade County, an $11.7 billion budget one preliminary approval last week after more than three hours of public comment at the at the meeting. Um, what were some of the main concerns expressed by the public in that meeting? Doug, are you with us? Um, yeah, Doug, Doug, are you with us? I'm told you're, you're here now. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. So Okay. Yeah, I would say what dominated the, because I heard you, um, what dominated the public hearing is there was a big effort by a lot of advocacy groups to really bolster the housing budget. And they brought a lot of people to speak um, who spoke about, listen, uh, housing costs are extremely hard in Miami-Dade and it's very tough to get by. And so they uh, want a continued uh, county spending on that. That kind of started last year, some programs uh, that were funded by uh, federal COVID dollars that kind of remain. It's kind of a mix of COVID dollars and local dollars. Um, and then you had this, uh, a big conflict, ongoing conflict over how to spend money uh, when it comes to uh, pet overpopulation. And we'll, we'll talk about the pet stuff in, in a minute, but what, I mean, how much of money is being directed in this new record budget is specifically to housing. I mean, I think, I think for a lot of people that is far above and beyond the, the most pressing problem in South Florida in general. Right. Well, what you saw last year with Levine, Mayor Levine Cava is an effort to subsidize what are pretty much close to market rents. Um, you've written about this very well. Um, a program where the county issues grants to landlords um, renting to people that are making at or more than the median income. And the idea is that uh, the county would, would, would give them, I think it's like $200 a month to keep the rent stable. Um, and that is a, it's never happened before. And it's, it's, it's only supposed to last three years. Um, and there's some other similar ones, like there's kind of a similar program for mortgage assistance, similar program to subsidize. Um, some some sales of houses in that in this targeting the same kind of workforce income level. So there's kind of these one-off pilot programs that are getting funding funding while the funding lasts from COVID dollars, which were just flowing and continue. They're not flowing anymore, but there's a lot left to spend, mm -hmm. and also um, big spike in construction and uh, property values. And uh my last question for now for, for you, Doug, um, before we move on to the, the, the county budget, I mean, it has expanded by quite a lot um, there. The, the commission passed uh, a 1% reduction or at least preliminarily passed 1% reduction in the, in the tax rate, but still it means, I mean, people's taxes are going up. Um, 
I mean, where is all this extra money on the, you know, in, in revenue? Like, where is it going? Where, what can we point to and say that's where it's going? Right. Well, a big expense is county employees. They're getting a 3% raise, which is, you know, generates, eats up a lot of money. Um, a lot of that, too, is kind of their own categories of the port, the airport, water and sewer, and solid waste, right? Like those fees are generated, but they only pay for those, but they're in the budget. So it's really like a $2 billion, I think, is the general fund, which which is where most of the fighting happens. That's the mostly property taxes. Um, so I would, you know, payroll is, is always big. And then a lot of these kind of one-off programs that that are tied to, or at least have their origins in the uh, the COVID the COVID assisted programs. And I want to bring into the conversation Gerard Albert, the third WLRN's Broward County reporter, uh, talking about Broward County, many of the same issues and concerns. Um, Broward, uh, sorry, Gerard, what were residents speaking about last week during Broward County's first budget meeting? Yeah, it's it's a lot of the same stuff. A lot of um, the push for um, help with housing. Um, a lot. A, a few people spoke about um, lowering the property tax rate, which was proposed by Commissioner Udine. Um, it did not pass, but um, there was a lot of people there speaking about a pilot program that activists are pitching, uh, the tenant right to counsel program, which would basically provide. Um, money to nonprofit uh, legal organizations to represent tenants who are facing evictions. Um, and it's modeled after a similar program that passed in Miami-Dade, I think, last year. The the eviction diversion pilot program, which which yes. I, I will mention for the audience's sake, um, looks like it's going to be receiving an additional $259,000 in, in the budget process in Miami-Dade. Um, Gerard, please, please continue. Yeah, so that's that's the you know it's a lot of the same stuff that we're hearing all around South Florida. Um, the big concern was housing and taxes going up, because while the millage rate stayed the same in Broward County, um, the property value went up. I think it was eleven percent. And right, I mean th- this year's proposed budget for the Broward County is eight point six billion dollars. It- it was six point nine billion last year. That's one point seven billion more dollars in taxes. Um, I mean, there was a proposal put forward by by Commissioner Udine to to lower it ever so slightly, and the commission decided, no, we're going to keep it the same. Why did they say they wouldn't lower it even one percent or half a percent? Yeah, I think the pitch ended up being point zero two percent by Udine, and. You know, it would have saved the average uh, property owner here. I think the number was if if you were homesteaded versus if you weren't, there was a dollar difference, but about five dollars a year. So it was not a, a huge chunk at all. And um, a lot of commissioners were against it because while this year was good, um, they were saying that next year might not be and in the future there might not be so they would have to raise the millage rate again and um, lowering it really didn't serve too much of a purpose Um, like I said it would have been about five dollars a year the average person would have saved in Broward and I mean is are there any new programs new things that are being launched by the Broward County government to 
you know, to, to use that money for? Or is a lot of it like Miami-Dade going to employee raises because South Florida is the inflation hotspot in, in the country and the cost of living has just risen, risen while the money coming in has risen? Well, some of it's going to employee raises, yes. Um, but the county has its eyes on affordable housing. Um, there is a historic amount of money going to affordable housing housing, $20 million um, set aside for it, and then an extra $1.3 million uh, for supportive housing units. Um, so yes, raises for sure. Um, and then the normal things like law enforcement that and the sheriff's office that take a, a big chunk of the budget and that go up because of personnel and raises there. But the county is throwing a lot of money um, to try and address affordable housing. Well, I want to bring Mike Diamond from the Palm Beach Post into into this conversation. Um, Mike call, covers County Hall there. Um, Mike, I want to ask you, unlike Broward, that's going to keep the tax rate flat or Miami-Dade, that looks like it's going to shed it by 1%. Palm Beach County commissioners plan to make the most drastic cuts to the tax rate since the Great Recession. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yes. So there was a, uh, a push uh, last year for the first time in 15 years. They they lowered the millage rate tax rate by about one percent. Uh, and this year there was a lot of discussion, and they they decided to cut that rate by five six percent. And uh, the reason for it is uh, Commissioner Maria Marino was behind it. She argued that uh, the county's flush with money. We've got this record amount of uh, new construction and, and new rateables coming online, new new tax values, and we can afford to do this. The county administrator pushed back, saying that you know we're we're, we're dipping into our reserve; it's getting a bit too low. But the commissioners just felt it's tough times, and and we instead of just cutting, making a token cut of one percent. By making going to the five six percent, basically, any property that's homesteaded, they're, they're while they're going to have higher property values because they're capped at the assessment increase at around three percent, they're really not going to see a hike. And in fact, some people may actually see a lower a lower uh, a, a county tax bill, which counts for about twenty five percent of the overall tax bill. I I, but, I, I uh, do they, I do want to underscore. I mean, that's a drastic. <laughs> that's drastically different than what's happening south of Palm Beach, where the, you know, technically in Miami-Dade County, the rate's going down, but you're still going to be paying more. I mean, are is there concern? Because it's easier to lower taxes politically than to raise them. Is there a concern in a couple of years that they're going to have to to raise it and that's just going to be a, be tough? Well, exactly. That's the argument against it, that, that t- times are good now, but they may not be good in the future. Um, you know, uh, Marino pointed out that we've seen pro- property values have risen by 13% this year. So there's a massive amount of more money coming in. And, you know, I think the public needs to be a little leery of, of, of some of the commissioners that, you know, uh, brag about keeping the millage rate the same or making a modest cut uh, when, when they've got this tremendous value coming in. But, but yeah, there is a, there were concerns that the county administrator raised about, you know, uh, the reserve getting a little bit low. It could affect uh, 
your your bond rates, your interest rates, your pay on bonds, and uh, concern about services. But they just felt that they could they could live with this uh, by by making you know vacancies. There's a lot of vacancies that weren't getting filled and not filling them. But it is it is a concern. Well, I want to bring. Doug Hanks with the Miami Herald back into this. Um, Doug, you you did mention earlier, and and I was watching it. There was a lot of public concern about animal services in in Miami Dade County, and 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 the state of them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what's going on with the budget, um, and how the county handles, you know, dogs and and cats that are in in need of, yeah. of care. Absolutely. It's a perennial um, source of friction, a very organized group. Um, They're starting to have some disagreements as to the next steps. But uh, it looks like um, there is $2 million at play where the county wanted to build a dog sanctuary for homeless stray dogs. It looks like the mayor is probably going to say, you know, that was not the best idea we've ever come up with. Let's put that money into something else. And the animal services activists definitely want cash spent on sterilization of dogs. Uh, during the pandemic, that really uh, those numbers really dropped off, and now you're getting a lot more dogs that can get pregnant. Um, and so you're having this crush of of, un, of you know abandoned dogs, homeless dogs that the county shelters cannot handle. They're full, they're beyond full. So it's it's a total mess. Um, that has no great solution, doesn't seem like, at least no great short-term solution. Right. And uh, Mike, Mike Diamond, want, want to bring you back in here. In, in, in Palm Beach County, The one of the areas where it looks like expenses are going to go up a lot is is funding the supervisor of elections office. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that and what's going on and what's what's behind it? Yeah, it's very interesting. So the new laws that Governor DeSantis and the Republican legislature passed uh, are really driving uh, tremendous budget increases at uh, supervisor election offices. And it's across the state of Florida, not just Palm Beach County. I think Broward had a 22 percent increase, uh, Orange County 47 percent, Flagler 52 percent. So what they're saying is uh these new election laws, for example, the secure intake ballot stations, which used to be called simply drop boxes, you've got to have somebody observing that every minute it's open. And uh, Wendy Satori Link, the supervisor, says she's got to put two people there. Somebody's got to go to the bathroom. You know, you've got to have a second person there. So that's very expensive. We've got outdated voting machines that have to be replaced. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a real issue throughout the state, not just Palm Beach County. That's fascinating and something I think we all need to start looking at in, in other counties and whatnot. Um, G- Gerard Albert, um, in, in Broward County, there was, you know, something that happened relatively recently. There was a, a helicopter crash with a Broward Sheriff's Office um helicopter that 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 did result in death unfortunately and there was conversation about what to do with the helicopters in the sheriff's office in the budget meeting last week um can you tell us a little bit about that sure well first and foremost the um county approved um on on the first budget hearing and has has to approve it next week um but they will 
a $15 million allocation for a brand new uh, rescue helicopter for BSO. Um, so that'll make it four helicopters that BSO has, two for air rescue and two for law enforcement. Think about it like a SWAT helicopter. Um, but Sheriff Gregory Tony um, has said and brought it up and it's been there, it's been documented and there's been reports that all of the other helicopters are outdated. The one that crashed was outdated and he's requesting six helicopters. Um, so the county and the sheriff are in talks about how to budget for that. Um, it's well above, I think, like a $70 million project um, that would have to be reoccurring. It's quite but, a lot. Yeah, it is. And uh, But this, this new helicopter um, that's coming in is going to be um, expedited, whereas it usually takes about two to three years for these types of helicopters to come in. This one should take about six months because the company had uh, a contract for two of these rescue helicopters fall through, which allowed Broward to step in and purchase one and possibly the second one, depending on um, how they can move money around. That that 15 million, uh, about 13 million came out of uh, last year's reserves or last financial year's reserves and uh, about so, 2 million will come out of uh, got it. next year. We've been speaking with Miami Herald County Hall reporter Doug Hanks, WLRN's Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III, and Palm Beach Post County Hall reporter Mike Diamond. Thank you all so much for coming on. For sure. Thank Thanks for having me. Still to come, an appeals court ruling makes getting permanent residency in the U.S. a whole lot harder for thousands of Cuban immigrants. We'll be back right after the break. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Cubans are not accustomed to facing obstacles to get legal U.S. residency. For more than half a century, the 1966 Cuban Adjustment Act has granted Cubans a unique and what some would say is a privileged fast track to legal status here. Just a year and a day after they've arrived legally and they've been permitted, they're eligible for a green card, something other migrants can only hope for. Sometimes they wait decades for that same opportunity. But this week, the U.S. Justice Department essentially told Cubans they can no longer take this for granted. Its Board of Immigration Appeals ruled that the I-220A forms, the immigration form that more and more Cubans receive today after crossing the U.S. southern border seeking asylum, that that new form does not constitute legal entry into this country. And without legal entry, those Cubans do not qualify for the Cuban Adjustment Act. This new ruling leaves thousands of recently arrived Cubans in an unprecedented immigration purgatory. And that's made Cuban leaders here, like Miami Republican Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, extremely angry at the Biden administration about this. Do they have a right to be angry? Are you or, are you or your family affected by this new ruling? We want to hear from you. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576 or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to help explain just what the Federal Immigration Board said this week and why it matters is Miami Immigration Attorney John De La Vega. John, thanks for coming on. Thank you for the invitation. So just to start with, what 
are the conditions under the Cuban Adjustment Act that have allowed in the past for Cubans to apply for permanent residency in the U.S. after a year? And what changed this week? Well, the first the first part is that the U.S. government has been historically very uh, reasonable when granting parole when Cuban citizens come through the border. However, for the past uh, six or seven years, we've seen a high number of Cuban uh, nationals receiving the I-228, which is a release on own reconnaissance, which does not give, it's not considered a parole. So the Board of Immigration Appeals just uh, clarified that from now on, if a Cuban citizen uh, comes through the border and it's given a uh, I-228, if it tries to apply for the Cuban Adjustment Act, then it will most likely be denied. And just in a practical sense, because there's thousands and thousands of people who recently in recent years have made it to South Florida from Cuba with these forms, Um, you know, family friends of mine have done that um, and they're trying to figure this out. I mean, what is the repercussions of that? Does that mean there is no path forward to, to, to getting a green card? Is it just more complicated? Like, what does it mean for those families? Well, the, the main issue is that people were hoping that the, the BIA, the Board of Immigration Appeals, was going to give a, a, a positive uh, decision regarding the I-228. However, we just saw that they were clear uh, stating that, the, that it was not be, it's not considered a uh, parole under uh, the immigration laws. So now uh, Cuban nationals need to understand that the second option is probably applying for asylum in the United States. And they will have to uh, show either they suffer past persecution or they have a well-founded fear of future persecution if they return to Cuba. So now I have dozens of people messaging me asking, what should we do? And, of course, first, consult with an immigration attorney. uh, But second, probably the asylum will be a a good option in a lot of the cases. And and you mentioned that these I-220A forms have been... The, the federal government has been giving them increasingly over the last six or seven years. I mean, when did, when did this really start, this change from being admitted under parole to this new form? Well, historically, the, on, on the border, we've seen that people come out either with a, a parole, humanitarian parole, they, or they uh, get released under the I-220A. With the Cuban nationals, we, we had a, 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 a generous or reasonable trend that the federal government was issuing them paroles so they were able to adjust their status under the Cuban Adjustment Act because they had all the documentation to do it. But in the past, uh, like I said, five, six years, we've seen that the practice has been inconsistent throughout the border. So some, even some uh, Cuban families, sometimes the mother gets the I-220 and then the father and the child get parole. So, yeah, it has been inconsistent and it has affected the entire community. And I mean, it, as as far as your understanding, is there any reasoning that's been given by the federal government as to why it's a little bit haphazard? Some people get this form, some people get that form. Is there any rhyme or reason to this? Zero, and there has been that has been the main complaint because uh, for the amount of people coming through the border, uh, they they don't have they're not organized, and it is an inconsistent practice. So it depends. At the end of the day, it's a matter of luck if the CBP officer, the ICE officer, wants to grant you the parole or not. And it has been frustrating. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, a Republican representing parts of 
Miami-Dade and Collier County, um, he issued a statement saying that issuing these I-220As to new arrivals amounted to targeting Cubans because of how it impacts their ability to benefit from the, the Cuban Adjustment Act. Um, John, my question to you, is that a fair criticism or are other immigrant groups also being let in with the with these same documents and Cubans are among them and it just affects Cubans because the existence of the Cuban Adjustment Act and the benefits that that entails? Well, based on the, on the government's protocols at the border, we've seen that they have taken a uh, uh, more reasonable measures with the Cuban nationals. However, I think that now the federal government has said or they're thinking that does not matter where you come from. We're going to we're going to practice the same pattern that we have at the border. And that's why uh, I think it's fair what the congressman is saying. But at the same time, I think the federal government just is not going to keep uh, <clears throat> implementing the, the rules or the policies they had, special policies for Cuban nationals. And, and when it comes to this decision from the Board of Immigration Appeals, um, is is there any possibility for an escalation or an appeal of, of that ruling? Or is this is this more or less final at this point? No, we're waiting now for the, the, the respondents to file an appeal in the federal courts of appeals. And uh, uh, that that can happen. I think most likely will happen. However, it can take months or even years to get a decision from the federal court of appeals. And for the meantime, we're going to have this legal precedent that USCIS and the immigration courts will be using to deny applications of Cuban nationals that already applied for the Cuban Adjustment Act with the I-228. So this is shocking, but unfortunately, us practitioners here, and especially in South Florida, we need to find a new uh, legal ways to be able to to help these Cuban nationals. And 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 John, I mean, I'll, I'll, many of your clients are, are are Cuban, and I mean, you just use the word shocking for this. Um, it, it it is rather shocking because the the Cuban Adjustment Act has, for so many decades, been looked at as you know, a year and a day, you can apply for this, you can get in. Um, can, can you speak a little bit to, you know, w- what this is doing to the psyche of Cuban families here? I mean, some of your clients that are waiting, like what is this doing psychically to the experience of immigration from Cubans? Yeah, definitely. The anxiety right now in the community is high. I have uh, people that call me and message me and say, hey, I have sleepless nights at this time because I don't know what's going to happen to me. Because this decision is pretty much saying, if you came with an I-228, we will not grant you uh, the legal permanent residency under the Cuban Adjustment Act. That's what's basically the, the decision is telling us. So now they, and I'm trying to to help them and make them understand that there's still options. We still have the the the, the political asylum uh, real form of relief that we can still apply for. So. Like I said, right now, the, 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 the anxiety is high, but at the same time, I tell people to consult to an immigration attorney to find other uh, options to be able to stay in the United States legally. And are, are, are Cubans in Cuba aware of these changes? I mean, the Cubans that are potentially trying to make their way to the United States right now, do you have a sense that this is disseminating through those communities? Oh, 100%. If you look on social media for the past three days, the I-220A and the BI decision has been, they have, have been trending when you talked about immigration. And I have people from uh, from different areas, uh, they're Cuban national, calling and asking questions about that, this decision. 
So yes, uh, it's a hundred percent they know, but they still want to get. They still want to try to get to the United States because at the end of the day, even if you can apply for asylum, even if you can find any type of protection in this country, you're going to be way better than staying in Cuba. Right, and, and my my last question to you is, um, if if someone is here or their family member is here on one of these forms, which is it's not parole, um, just like in a, in a practical level, where does that leave them? Are they technically documented? Are they not documented? Because it's weird. They've been admitted, but not really admitted. So, I mean, where does that leave them? Well, what the government tells in their paperwork is that they release them so they're able to finish their removal proceedings or their court proceedings. So that means that the the person, the Cuban national, still has a right and a chance to apply for uh, other type of reliefs, for example, asylum in court, and they still have the, the right to uh, go in front of a judge and prove their case. So this, this is not the, the, the end of their, their time in the U.S., but definitely they need to be proactive and start working on other type of relief so they're able to stay in the United States. John De La Vega is a Miami immigration attorney joining us to talk about Cuban migration in this decision. John, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for the invitation. And that'll do it for this week on the South Florida Roundup. Tim Padgett will be back next week. The South Florida Roundup is produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Danny Rivero. Have yourself a great weekend, and thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.